Hey everyone, before we get started, I just want to make sure you're aware of something cool that Vagrant's doing. Vagrant has 26 years on the street anniversary shows coming up. On May 28th at the Five Point Amphitheater in Irvine, California, they're going to have Dashboard Confessional, Alkaline Trio, Thrice, The Get Up Kids, Hot Rod Circuit, and The Anniversary. And on June 11th at the Palladium Outdoors in Worcester, Massachusetts, they're going to have Dashboard Confessional, Thrice, The Get Up Kids, Hot Rod Circuit, The Anniversary, and Monine. For tickets and more info, go to vagrant.com. Hello, I'm Matt Pryor of The Get Up Kids, and this is Vagrant Records, 25 years on the streets, where we tell the oral history of the label by the artists, fans, and insiders. In the next couple of episodes, we're going to discuss Vagrant's influence on the music scene over the years and talk to fans of the label. Manchester Orchestra's Andy Hull was just a kid when Vagrant was making waves at the turn of the century, but the music that came from the label had a profound effect on him. I spoke to Andy about this. Oh, and as always, the other voice you'll hear in this conversation is super producer of this podcast, Jesse Cannon. Okay, so what we're talking about here is we're making this document about Vagrant Records. And I was curious, when did you become aware of, because I know that you're friends with some bands who are on Vagrant. So when I was in the eighth grade and the ninth grade, like the bands that were popular, this would have been 2001, 2000, 2001. So the bands that were, you know, popular on the radio in the rock realm were, were pretty slim pickings. You had like, like the kind of the coolest you would get, I think out of it would be like Incubus. Definitely yeah. the coolest, coolest would be System of a Down, but they were such an outlier, you know, but I just, and I'm saying that like, no, no disrespect to Incubus, but I just mean like that was really like what was on the radio. You know, it was kind of a very like kind of cock rock In- period. Incubus was was a more introspective sort of sort of band because there was a lot of like rap metal going Correct. on around that time. There was a lot of rap metal, and I, you know, I had my hands on a copy of of most of it, of Seven Dust and Oh God, Limp Biscuit Records, and I, I was too young to know Andrew, and it made me feel a certain way. So I sort of got over it though because it, it wasn't as interesting to me. And I I was thinking today it must have been a link to like Blink One Eighty Two and starting to sort of figure out what some of those other bands, fringe bands that sort of sounded like them, sounded like No Effects and newfound glory and stuff like that. And I, I listened to that stuff um, for a while in like the eighth and ninth grade and, and really loved the melodic sense of it and like really like the songwriting side of it. But I was never like kind of a blast punk beat that isn't where I like felt my comfort zone. So when I heard about you guys, it sort of flipped it on its head. I was thinking you guys were really like a, a gateway is the wrong word because you weren't doing the things that I was hearing in that scene, but you were like a real band. And as I was listening to that today to something right home about, I was thinking the reason that I still love this is because it sounds really, really great still to this day, but like everything is well thought out. Every part has a place and there's some, there's parts where there's a ton of things going on, but they're all like in unison with each other. And they weren't just huge chords over top of, of choruses. They were like thoughtful patterns. And there's some like cha-cha-chung stuff going on, but like not a ton. It was like, it, it's it just, it was really cool to listen back to it today a few times. I think the vagrant side of it was like a real, then I discovered, you know, Saves the Day, which was another sort of band that was lyrically, melodically, I felt was sort of out of this world. Then further, you know, heard, I'll tell you a band I really loved was Hot Rod Circuit. I thought that that, I had just listened to that record a few months ago for the first time in forever. And just like such a powerful meat and potatoes, good rock band. Mm-hmm. Meat and potatoes is a good way to put it. I like that. Is that? <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, good. <laughs> I don't mean that insulting in any way. It's like a blue collar rock band. Like it's very like it's cool. I like it's a good it, that's on brand for them. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, it, it resonated with me. That record really resonated with me a lot. Um, and then you know from there it was like just discovering more music that was doing stuff that was more like like you guys were doing. You know, like in the indie rock sphere, I guess. Um, which it felt like a lot of those bands sort of started to go down that lane as well. That's. So you, this is around like eighth grade, you're saying? Right, 10th grade. No, that was when I was grade. like hearing okay. the bad music. I think I heard Four Minute Mile in ninth grade. And then was that checkout 2001, 2002? Four Minute Mile came out in 97. Something Right Home About came okay, out so in Okay, so that's 99. certainly. Okay, so certainly. Yeah, eighth and ninth grade. Ninth grade would have been when I was hearing like, um, because the, I'm sorry that I'm butchering this, but you had a compilation disc that was all your faces in green called you what was U, it it's eudora it's the name eudora. of eudora yeah it's the name of a town uh, about six miles from lawrence where we used to own a studio okay we, cool we recorded a bunch of it's basically like where we would record anything that was going to be on a split seven inch or oh, cool. demos or something like that so i bought that at a target <laughs> amazingly and because it was hard for me to find records in the suburbs of of Atlanta. It was like Best Buy. There weren't any record shops. I could go into town to find stuff, but rarely did because I didn't have my driver's license. So sort of whatever you could get. And I remember getting that after Four Minute Mile and hearing a bunch of these songs that I was falling in love with that I would find out later were like recorded on an album for something to write home about. Because I think you had alt versions, right? Of like 10 minutes and I'm a loner and stuff like that. A couple. Yeah. A couple songs. Yeah. So yeah, about ninth grade is right when I, I started to really sink my teeth in. And then 10th grade, about 10th grade is probably when Hot Rod Circuit Tricker came out, like 02, 03. Um, that sounds about right. And then, yeah, I was kind of, I was in from that point. And then it was really weird because I started this band three years later and we're like on a tour with Saves the Day, you know, in March of 2007, like oh, true wow. Ellis way. So yeah, there were like some <laughs> some real kind of mind-blowing moments back then being on those tours, being like, what the fuck? Is that, was that your first tour? Our first national tour was brand new. And like I dabbled in some brand new early in high school, but I didn't stay with it as much as I'd stayed with like Saves the Day. Like I was still up, still am. But like when by the time we toured with Saves the Day, they were on that that super cool punk record they had, Sound the Alarm. This was like 30 minutes of violence. And I was so <laughs> into that record. That was the vibe on that record. There were no sunshine moments on that whole thing. And so we would drive around our first couple tours, just listen to that relentlessly because it was so energetic. And so by the time, yeah, we did brand new and finished that tour. And then like right away went and did a co-headline between Say Anything and Saves the Day, like maybe two weeks after that. That was, those were our first couple tours. So were National you already ones. were you already working with Ellis at that point? I assume. Yeah, yeah. You basically got on all of his tours. Well, we got the brand new tour without Ellis. That's how we found out about Ellis. Oh, I, I was the merch guy for the band Color Revolt on Brand News tour. They were from Mississippi, right? Yep, yep, yeah. We were just like Southern kind of bands who tour together. Uh, Jackson, Mississippi, and so we met them through touring, like you know. In, in van, like suburban, like our parents' vans, not even band vans. But you go do like weekends, go do something in Mississippi, go do something in Florida and Birmingham. And so we had met them. And then through that band, Anathalo, who was like a, a an Ellis band, he picked up Anathalo after like South by and Anathalo were like Big Brothers Colorful, Colorful were like Big Brothers Us. And so they were going out, they're like, dude, this band brand new just gave us their entire summer. I was like, I got to come out here and see this. And so like went out there and made friends with the guys in Brand New. And we were finishing up our debut record. Jesse liked my vibe, I guess. And 
asked if we could open some shows um, for them, like some one-offs. And we had just finished our record, like passed our record around on CD to all those guys. And they really liked it, that Ellis heard it. And that's sort of how it all started to come together on that side of things. I, I always, it's kind of cool that there's a, I guess I, I never thought about it before, that there's like kind of a Southern sort of like indie rock punk sort of like its own thing. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's like... Because there, there is in the Midwest for sure, and of course there is on the coast. But going to the Southeast is always kind of like it's like the longest drives outside of Texas and stuff. Well, yeah. or like like going from you know that because we would always do Kansas City, Denver, Salt Lake City, and that's like yeah, brutal. And then what like Salt Lake to Seattle or something? Yeah, which is like if we the can, get, if we can get Idaho, then that's great. <laughs> if not, or it's like <laughs> and it's like fourteen hours to Seattle, which is like brutal and of course if ellis books it it means it's like you're playing it the next night <laughs> no doubt and i mean he took advantage of that for sure with us because i mean he was booking some tours basically we got that brand new tour before he was booking us and then we made the decision to to work with each other after like another hilarious typical you can ask anybody everybody's got a long story about how it happened did he ever route a tour for you that had like like six ridiculous drives in a row yeah and now that we're on a bus it's like every, every day is it's just everything's insane. I was actually asking because he used to do these crazy routings for us like in the 90s, in the late 90s. And I got into a thing with him about it. And I was like, no, it can't be more than six hours if we're in a van. And I was wondering if he took that to heart with any of his other bands or if he went on to like still do it. We're playing Montreal and then the next night we're in Austin. You know, or something like that. <laughs> I've certainly had those, and and some of them have been circumstance where he will preface it. But because where we were from, you can make a pretty straight shot to New York and hit up markets along the way. So you know, we never had the insane. There were certainly some where you drive past where you were supposed to be and then have to drive back down south and stuff like that. But um, I think because we weren't a Midwest or West Coast band, we had a little bit more options for like, we can either go West and hit a lot of stuff that way, or we can go North and hit a lot of stuff that way. I don't know why bands that live in the Northeast ever leave. There's like so many places to play up there. You could just do like a whole tour. <laughs> yeah, it's like England. Yeah, exactly. Just, just, just play two, an hour and a half away from each other and some <laughs> other different people. And they think it's a really long drive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not driving 90 minutes. He's my insane. <laughs> Did you ever have any interactions with anybody at Vagrant? I mean, you guys have had a like, you've always kind of had your own record label and partnered with other people. Yeah. I mean, they were definitely a label that when we were talking to people early on, were, were wanting to sign us, which was really, you know, flattering. We just didn't really know how to, we didn't know exactly what we were looking for other than complete freedom. And so we've sort of landed on being able to have our own record label and also having the tools, you know, of a major label. And that worked for so long. Um, and, and, you know, you kind of figure out what's next. But I think by the time it was probably 06 that we were talking to Vagrant, it was trying to compare 10 different record labels, you know, with each other. And I had no idea what the best one was to do, you know, but I always heavily you know, respected the, the legacy of it. And that kind of era like around 2006 or so. Cause I think that's when thrice ended up signing there too was around that time. And I was kind of like one of the things that a lot of the bands that came to the label later were talking about is like how they got a lot of like independence from the label to like do things their own way. But you guys didn't really need that because you already had your own label that anybody yeah. that was going to like take you in was going to have to accept the fact that you have your own record label and that you do things your own way. Yeah, I think so. I think we just had a, a, the DIY. It's like a beautiful mix of, you know, bravado and stupidity. 
of just kind of feeling well, yeah, like you're a musician. <laughs> <laughs> Amen to that. That's true. You have to have a, a certain amount of narcissism just to do the job. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right about that. To get out of bed in the morning require just a spoonful of narcissism. Yeah, just put um, it right in your coffee. <laughs> but yeah, I think I just thought, well, we've been DIY already and we're selling records and we're not selling a ton of records. We're selling 400 to 700 records a week and we've got a distro deal through the coalition of independent music stores. And, you know, it just didn't, the, the idea of that freedom, it was more like, how can we have as many tools at our disposal? Which is hilarious because we went to the, you know, our first record gets picked up and it's like the subsidiary of Columbia and they're desperately trying to work the songs to radio. And we're like, we're not just going to be some radio band, man. Like, don't, don't play ours. Don't try to get our songs on the radio. It's too soon. And looking back, they must have just thought, what the hell is wrong with this dude? We were <laughs> anti-radio for our entire first record. You know, I think we all, especially when we're younger, we all go through this sort of like, we establish what our rules are, right? And maybe those things change over time. Uh, hopefully oh. they do. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah they, they definitely do. But just like we get into this kind of like, well, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do this. And it's kind of like, really, we should just kind of be open to whatever and then find out what, like we, we make these sort of like blanket statements that that might shoot us in the foot, you know? Totally. Absolutely. You should, an openness, you're right, that's it. You can't be naive and openness and naive are right, they're next door neighbors. Well, especially since the industry is predatory, especially the, the major label industry at that time. You know. And that's why I was so, I mean, that was all you ever heard from any band who ever came out of Atlanta or the South who would sign a deal. It's like you get a couple million dollars and then your record would sit on a shelf and no one's ever heard of you again. You know, so we were definitely scared of, of that as well. You were so young too, because didn't you sign when you were like, still a teenager? Yeah. Or was it? Yeah. I think so. 19 was, or 20, something like that. Cause the, that's the kind of stuff that you hear. Like what was that band? That guy, AA Bondi, who used to be in yeah. that band Verbena. Yep. Was, was that him? So Verbena was Capitol records. And it was Scott Bondi. I just remember he saw him at CMJ, played a double neck Moserite. That was a beautiful guitar. <laughs> and I was just like, that's the coolest guitar. That's the same guy. But they're, they're one of those like got signed really, if I'm remembering the lore, right? They're one of those like got signed real young to like a really long contract and then just got shelved and had all this like promise or, or whatever. They're going to be the next Nirvana or whatever. But what's weird, man, is like this doesn't have to do with Vagrant, but just something to muse on for a second that I think about. Because um, I think that was a what those long deals were initially for was like a, a label trying to help develop an artist. I guess ideally that was the idea, right? So you don't just spend money on on an album one and two. You want to like see this thing grow, but it's a long term investment. So that sort of goes away. I feel and it kind of comes back with a three sixty deal, and then it goes away and. Now it's interesting that even without the labels, it seems that so much you can get so big so soon just from streaming and like something happening at the right time that it's almost sort of turning into this weird like the internet is like weirdly setting people up for sophomore slumps and like not having enough development because they're so huge immediately, even if it has nothing to do with the label. I just find that interesting. Kevin Devine is one of my favorite people on the planet. Besides being a gifted songwriter, he is also one of the most thoughtful and compassionate humans I know. Though he was never on Vagrant, he's played with a lot of the bands and his fandom goes way back. I spoke to KD about it. When all of our stuff was happening in like the early 2000s, you were on Capital time, right? Is that, am I remembering that right? I was on Triple Crown first. Actually, I was on Immigrant Sun first, which was like an upstate New York hardcore label that Joshua was on. Right. It saves the day. 
Which is Sukhan. Sukhan was in Joshua. Sukhan was in Joshua. And they also put out a Saves the Day acoustic EP that lit, like funded that label for the rest of its existence. <laughs> it just like, um, and so Miracle was on Immigrant Sun, and I did my first Kevin record there. And then we did the next two solo records when Miracle broke up with Triple Crown. And then I went to Capitol for 06, I think was the Capitol record. Yeah, 06 or 07. Triple Crown um, yeah. as a solo artist or just with Miracle? Miracle had split up or was just about to. I was on Triple Crown for two records called Make the Clocks Move and Split the Country, Split the Street. So that was 03 and 05. Okay, so that was around the same time period. Yes. What I'm, what I'm, yes. And so you were kind of in that, especially being, because Triple Crown, as we're kind of finding out through this, especially with like Hot Rod Circuit and, and stuff like that, we're, we're sort of like in the in the periphery of like the whole Vagrant kind of thing. Oh, and, 100%. Yeah, I would even, and with Brand New too, I would think that all, there was a lot of like cross-pollinating happening with those bands, playing touring, Warped oh. Tour, all of that stuff. Yeah. Once we all started working with Ellis, it was just sort of like, it's way, yes. way easier for him to find opening bands. <laughs> <laughs> Tried and true. Did you ever have any dealings with, with Vagrant at all? My memory. So I can tell you my, I actually, this is weird. I remember it's a get up kids memory and a Vagrant memory. And it was before I really knew you. I was a student in college. Uh, I was at Fordham in New York and it was, I, w- I want to say, when did you guys sign to Vagrant? 99. Okay. And did you that year for CMJ do a Vagrant showcase somewhere? Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I've actually, I can look at, I can look across my office at the poster right now. It was in September of 99. And do you, what, what venue? Was it Bowery? The Bowery. And it was okay. us, Reggie, the anniversary, and no motive. So here's this. This will. This is actually a very, I think, revealing anecdote just about my own general obliviousness as well, which is not really lifted in the 20 years since. But um, I, so I was a student. I was. I had a job in the computer lab, uh, and I had the Village Voice. So I was looking through the Village Voice while I was like waiting, you know, like killing time at the job. And there was an uh, in the Bowery show listings. It said Vagrant Record Showcase. And then it said, get up kids. I didn't even know those other bands at that point, but I saw you guys. I've been a fan of get up kids since 96. I think I played a, I got those seven inches and so we played a band I was in was the first of three, first band on a three day festival that get up kids was the last band on the third day. Is that uh, the only time in, we ever played with Miracle? That wasn't even Miracle. That it was Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. I was like the third guitar oh. player in a, in a Staten Island band called In Find. And uh, we were the first band on the fir- on the Friday or something. And you guys closed the Saturday or the Sunday, if I remember correctly. It was either you or Braid, we were I on, feel like. We were on tour with Braid. I think they may have played after us. But it was one of those so, festivals where like, everybody ends up standing behind the band, like almost like inspiring the band. My memory of watching your set at that was I was standing effectively like side stage semi behind you okay yeah i could like see i'm looking at the band in my memory i mean i was i was i was 16 and i was uh i was yeah we were stoked i I remember hot water music played if i remember correctly that was also yeah there's a lot of stuff that happened that day but um so my memory is so I knew Get Up Kids. I was a fan of Get Up Kids. I knew Doghouse, which I believe Get Up Kids was on, right? Prior. Is that correct? Okay. So in my super skewed, subjective, limited understanding of things, I remember looking <laughs> at this advertisement in the Village Voice and going, 
the fuck is Vagrant Records? Get Up Kids are on <laughs> Get Up Kids are on Doghouse. That's like a fucking really good punk, like like strong punk rock label. Like this is a mistake for them. This is a bad move. Less less judging you guys, more judging. Like I really hope this doesn't negatively affect their career. <laughs> like what is this Vagrant Records thing? And of course, like as with almost everything ever in that arena in my existence in my music career industrial. I was wrong, like profoundly wrong. But that's the first time I remember remember seeing the name. And that's the first time I remember identifying the name in connection with you guys. And then within two years, uh, you know, Miracle had played with bands on the label. And then by the time 2002, three rolled around, I was, I had played with, I feel like half the roster at that point. Um, I remember doing a show at Bowery with like, hey, Mercedes, Kofax, Piebald. There were some other, you know, tours, shows and tours like that. Um, I don't know that I ever talked to them about my music. I imagine I sent Vagrant my music for sure at some point, either whether I did it or, or Matheson did it or somebody. But I, I'm, I can't imagine I wouldn't have at some point tried to be like, especially like by 2000. But then again, once we found Fred, I think that I was just stoked to have a home, you know, for those records. So, um, and then the capital thing was so out of nowhere that by that point it was like, uh, if I, I, what I'm thinking now is I wonder if I sent vagrant stuff after that, like when cap, when we got dropped by capital, but I don't remember having any kind of like formative conversations. Like, I don't even know if I, I don't even know if I ever met rich like ever. Really? Yeah. Or if I did, of all the time you've played with us and you've played with Karaba a couple of times too. Like, I mean, I must have met him, but I would imagine it was, it was in passing, you know, like I, I don't, I don't have a memory of like him and I, like, I'm sure I met him, but I don't, if you, if you asked me to like draw him, <laughs> uh, I would, I would have difficulty conjuring him from memory. But, uh, but, but yeah, that was my early dealings with the label were always like, uh, what's it called? Peripheral secondhand through the, through touring or playing shows with the bands on it or becoming friends with the bands on it. Um, like, you know, in some other way. Okay. I have, I have two kind of two questions here. So as we've been doing this and we've gone back to this whole thing, like that you just touched on as far as like my band and the person, like, cause I, I'm the insider looking out, you know? And so as an outsider looking in and you're like looking at someone who's in the same scene as you making a decision, like it make, like we were all very familiar with, you know, you're on an indie label and then you sign to a major label. And like, however, regardless of how you feel about that kind of decision, like whatever your, your ethics are, Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's normal, I guess. Like it's a, it's a trajectory that people have observed. Can you, cause you're very astute as far as like being aware of things, things in the in the industry even when you were at that time in your life can you speak to because like i i am really kind of realizing as we've done this podcast how fucking weird that was that we did that at the time you're you're signing to vagrant you mean yeah and like what's what was your you know as a as a a member of the east coast kind of i don't think of you intelligentsia i don't think of you yeah intelligent well okay there you go that's better i was gonna say you're a de facto (laughs) member of the hardcore scene even though you're not a hardcore kid yeah i would say that's true yeah yeah um, I, I, I like East Coast it's intelligentsia. It's like <laughs> you and John Hodgman. You know? <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. We hang out all the time. Right. Well, he's in Brooklyn. You know, what are you going to do? <laughs> 
like, can you speak to any as, as just being an observer to that? If that was something that like, I don't know exactly know what I'm trying to ask. But what I guess, my thoughts were about it or whatever. Uh, I guess, or what I Yes, that's it. I mean, I feel like what I was totally unaware of and frankly was kind of unaware of in a super clear cut way for a while. But at the time, for sure, I don't think I even knew my thing was less like, oh, the Get Up Kids signed to a major label. It was that I was like, I didn't know what the fuck Vagrant was. I had never, I, I had no familiarity with it up front. And so I thought it was like what I, what I fully misidentified and was like, not only proven wrong, but like brutalized in how wrong it was given how successful all of the, like the label and all of its endeavors, most of its endeavors were for the next however long, you know, I think that um, in that particular moment, especially, I think that um, I was more like, oh, I hope this isn't like a lateral or backwards move for them. Cause this, I don't, I, I was like, it was more like I had maybe lost the plot for a minute about like what was going on with the development of independent label culture in that corner of things. Cause I was kind of like, what the fuck is Vagrant Records? That's that, it was less that I was like, I, it was not as clear to me as if you had signed to like Warner Brothers outright or something like that. Uh, I think I was also like um, ignorant to whatever the like, um, the, the patron structure, the funding structure, the, you know, where the capital was coming from or who was, what the distribution looked like or any of that stuff. My concern was, Matt, purely for your well being and career. I was just, and, and not from the perspective of like, you know, sometimes when uh, a band signs to a major, you get, and, it's, and you, you get wind of that, you get concerned for that because you're like, they're going to get mistreated. You know what I mean? Or like miscast. Or I, th- well, I wonder if that's even the same now. But at that time, it was a little bit more like um, we were protective. Uh, I believe to some extent of of like what we perceive to be like ours. And I think particularly post like Nirvana and all of that, there was, there were like a few different wings. One was the like, it's open season, everything's, you know, give it a shot. And the other was like, I think, I think I internalized maybe even to some extent with the like Elliot story. There was just stuff where I was like, oh, there's just like, I'm getting off on a tangent here, but there was a part of me that was a little bit like, sometimes you were just afraid that somebody who was a little bit more idiosyncratic or maybe possessed of certain fragilities just shouldn't be in that world because <laughs> it might not be like uh, healthy for them. With you guys, it was more that I was like, I, I, I thought the band, and I'm, I'm just speaking as my 19-year-old computer lab working self i was like i thought the band was bigger than the label and i didn't i was like i in my head dog also i don't you don't know anything i might have been savvy in the sense that i knew what the fucking labels were but i think i thought doghouse was like um matador for punk bands or something like that you know what i mean and you know but you understand (laughs) like of course and i know that now but for somebody who was also just like very much just trying to get on regionally like for miracle and to a lesser extent i was just starting to kind of play more for myself acoustic like around school and at the wetlands and stuff like that they like i did a residency in the basement of the wetlands but anyway the point was i i to me like if miracle had been a i am certain i sent like you know crank records and doghouse and uh you know pick pick a bunch of things you could think i'm sure equal vision i think i sent all of those people miracles music um and i don't think we ever got much from them i remember we we got a nice letter back from kill rock stars which at least they like hand wrote a letter which was like this is nice we're not going to do anything with it but thanks for sending it and here are some stickers and i was like that's fucking cool um but anyway uh and then it was like 
I went from that day looking at that. It's so funny that burned in my brain. It must have burned in my brain because of how wrong I ended up being. Because within six months to a year, Vagrant, I saw Vagrant everywhere. And so many bands that were like um, very visible, very per- like percolating, building a thing. I kind of feel like that whole first wave of what became like MTV2, like all of the videos that I would see. like Fuse. Or, yeah, that, there was so much. And I mean, and there were other labels that ended up being a big part of that too, but Vagrant was definitely like the standard bearer. Um, and I'm not saying that you know this, you know me well enough at this point, we have had enough water under the, like the, my assessment of that is so, so I'm sure I know there, but so much of that for people like me was like, I knew what Vagrant, rec- I knew what Vagrant Records was because the Get Up Kids went there. And I think that there was a little bit, I'm sure there was a synergistic, mutually um, affirming thing that happened there. But I think there were people, certainly Certainly people like me who like even started to pay attention to the label because you guys were part of it then, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does. It's just, it's just an interesting thing to, yeah. Yeah. When you're, when you're the one that's in it, it's just sort of like, well, that's just what we did. Yes. Of course. It's just, it's just kind of interesting. But like, I remember thinking about like, kind of just, this isn't about Vagrant, but like about, I remember hearing about you and, and signing to a major and like, cause we had met and like, I always would hear about you through Dubin and stuff. Yep. Who's, you should have him on payroll. He's like your biggest advocate. No, I like, think that's very true. And it would be like, I w- would be like, ah, oh, he's signed to him capital. It's like, he's going to get eaten alive over Like, Yeah, I was one of those people. Someone might have thought that thing about. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, well, totally. I've seen it happen with Jimmy World, who were like an established, in my mind, an established band. And it was just like, how can, oh, you, for not, sure. how can you not make Jimmy World work? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I know. Jimmy World is so... A radio pop band. Yes. They were so destined to work that mm-hmm. they still made it work after all of that. That's like, yes. that's such a wild, like, you know, so many bands would have just like not played again for 15 years or something like that. They and then had like a major you know. label thing. And you're just like, 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 take Super Drag. Super Drag is an amazing band that, totally. that had a one kind of a minor hit and then like kind of got eaten alive by the major label system. Yep. And just stopped. You know, well, they have. Are, are Super Drag currently on Vagrant Records? Were they ever on they Vagrant? Split EP with the anniversary. Like okay, a, that's what I thought. There was some some connection. Career, but uh, or not post career, but like kind of like later in their career. Yes, yes, yes. But then you ended up being kind of like part of our general like scene and, and periphery. Like we would play shows together and you would always play. I assume you played with Saves and I know you played with Caraba. And I think, uh, did anybody ever try to like pair you up with Chris at all? Like, as- Well, the bands, the bands that I played, I'm sure if I had like a roster from that period in front of me, I would be like, oh yeah, oh yeah. I think I played, so weirdly, I played a show or two at Saves the Day, but given our, like, um, you know, that we would later kind of meet and get along so well, given the eventual connection with for Chris and I between Rob Schnaff, too, oh, right. and, yeah. then, and then given the... Um, the geographic, they were so close. I and the immigrant son piece too. I don't feel like I played with them until like way later. I it might have even been like the first show I ever played with Saves Day was in like 2008 or something okay. like that. But um, but I always, you know, we knew of one another. I played with you guys, but even that first time I ever played with Get Up Kids was at Dubin's bachelor party. Um, which no. outs- that was the first time you and I like I had done that show with Infine with you guys, but that was the first time like we did. I like opened with an acoustic set. The Get Up Kids played some songs, then we did replacement songs together, and then I tr- <laughs> almost got us kicked out of the golf club because yeah, yeah. between yeah. you 
You, Jay Russell, and us, we were a fucking hot mess. There was a lot happening that night. But also, I do know that um, I, I played with Caraba. Actually, that's how I got introduced to Ellis. And I don't know if Andrew even remembers this story, but in two, he likely does not. But I got a call at my... So Dubin, again, Dubin, Mike Dubin was and continues to be, but really at a very formative time for me and for a bunch of other people. He was greatly facilitative of my like finding peers and an audience and an infrastructure. He connected me with Fred at Triple Crown, which is a relationship I still like. Fred has been involved with like, I don't know whether it was through Triple Crown or through other like shadow <laughs> means. Fred has been involved with like seven of my records, you know. Um, he connected me with you guys and he definitely connected me to the whole Long Island thing. He saw Miracle in DC and was like, you should put out your record with our label and that connected us to all these other people. And in a, so indirectly, I have him to blame for this too, because he uh he must have he had given Caraba my first solo record, uh, which was little. It was called Circle Gets the Square. It was five maybe five hundred copies on CD, if even through through Immigrant Son. And Chris liked it, and I got a call from Ellis one night that was like uh, at my home phone number at my apartment in Bay Ridge. It's like fall of 2003. <laughs> and I think he said, I'm looking for Kevin Devine. And I was like, this is him. And he's like, this is Andrew Ellis. For some reason, Dashboard Confessional wants you to open a show for them. <laughs> and he was, and I was like 23, but I was like, in some ways, life experience wise, like an old 23, but in some ways, music experience wise, like a young 23. Uh, and I'm sort of prone as my, you know, like I, I have parts of my brain, but there is a part of my brain that is a little like, yeah, I don't know, naive and like, whoa. And so there was this part of me that was like, you know, I was like, kind of in the moment, like he was like, just asking me to do this show. And there was like, he didn't even have like, he didn't tell me when it was initially. I was just like supposed to say yes, you know? And I was like, uh, when is it? He was like, it's this day it's in, uh, Connecticut. Can you do it or no? Can you confirm? And I was like, uh, can I call you back? Like, can I like figure out some shit? I think he was just like, who the fuck is this person who like is asking to call back? That was when Chris was like really in a super ascendant moment, you know? And it wasn't because I didn't want to do the show. It's because I literally had to be like, I wonder if I can play a show that day. I have to check with my job. I have to check with whatever the fuck else was going on. So I did the show, but, um, and I met Caraba there and it was at that Webster Theater in Hartford, I think it was. Webster's Theater, I think it's called. And I, I remember meeting like all of Chris's family. They were all upstairs. Oh, right. He's from Connecticut originally. Yeah, yeah. And and he was so solicitous and kind. I'll never forget that. He was very like, you know, um, when he was playing his set, really like was uh, talked me up to his audience. I ended up doing a handful of shows with him in Germany the following year. And we've played shows intermittently on and off since. I haven't seen him in a minute, but I've always had like good uh, interactions with Chris. I remember like a very, very particularly the most, in fact, memorable one for me, which had nothing to do with music, was I was at a bar that I kind of lived at on Smith Street in, in Brooklyn for a while in 2005. It was called Brooklyn Social. I remember him coming in I believe it might have been with someone he was... I don't know his... I, I don't know if it was that it was his, a friend or a, or a potential romantic partner. I don't remember where his life was at that point. I, I can't speak to that detail in specific, but what I remember is he was in there and it was like an environment where he was with some people that he kind of knew, but he was like a little uncomfortable and he saw me. And it was one of those things where you're like, oh, thank fucking God. There's like a person here that I know. <laughs> that I know. It was unrelated. I was just in the bar separately and I was just sitting at the fucking bar getting shit-faced by myself. 
himself. So he came over and we just hung out all night and talked all night. And it was my favorite. That's like my, 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 um, I've always had good energy with Chris, but that was my fondest memory of him. Cause it was just totally divorced from anything else. It was just, he and I like both in, uh, different versions of semi uncomfortable circumstances, like, um, sharing some humanity for a few hours that kind of got us both out of whatever the thing was. But yeah, no, Caraba, hey, Mercedes, um, was piebald on Vagrant or no? No, they weren't, but they were they were kind of part of our our over they were adjacent overarching scene i'm certain i played with the anniversary i'm so, I, and i and you know i know they were uh vagrant through you guys but the band i actually ended up doing the most with that was from that was was kofax you know like i right. felt like yeah I'm, we did that seven week european tour together where i was in the van with them is that were rob and ryan in the band on that tour that was still john cruz was drumming and uh and uh, oh man yeah. i went to school with that kid lefty really sweet really yeah. sweet really and quiet be- sweet really guy quiet really sweet and benny benny was playing bass oh, singing harmonies yeah killer player great yeah. harmony singer uh and that was a fucking i'd never done any that was the first time i did anything like that seven weeks they let me in their van uh you know, and that was like a fucking crash course in everything. And it was, I was learning at the, at the, at the hands of uh, one of the most fascinating people to this day I have ever met doing what we do. <laughs> uh, old he, we, yeah. we, interview, we interviewed him and he's, uh, you know, he's a blast as usual, like legitimately one of a kind person. There is no, uh, <laughs> there is no precedent and no antecedent. Uh, he tour managed just one time and we ended up on a day off in Munich in the middle of fucking nowhere with like no restaurants, no grocery stores, no anything because he wanted to stay at a hotel that had a spa. And mm-hmm. That's so on brand. But it was one of those like old little German towns where it's like the restaurant and the hotel closed at six or something, you know, so it's like, okay, get down for dinner while you still can. And it was just, but it was just kind of like, what the fuck? <laughs> I mean, I like a, I like a spa. Although the concept of going to a spa right now sounds sort of disgusting, terrifying, <laughs> simply terrifying. Yeah, no, he was a very uh, he he had his he has European energy. I feel like for sure in that way. He's Czech. Yes, yes, and and I feel I also, but for me, something that was very I loved their music. Yes. Uh, and and I thought he was like very I thought the band was created. I, I fully think one of the from that era one of the mo- most underappreciated uh bands of that moment because i also think they like they kind of fit in a few places but they didn't fully fit anywhere i think i might have felt some kind of even though we did not make the same kind of music i think there might have been a little bit of a like a spiritual alignment about some of that i think that he was way more like it's funny because i was you know i'm from new york but I, rob was a way more like cosmopolitan kind of figure than I was like, yeah. he was, you know, I was like a bit more of a shambles and he was definitely more like, and I feel like there's so much funny shit. There's an incredible story from that where I was like, oh, I'm on tour with like fucking, like they were just like, I, I they were just like legitimate, not in some gross way. They were like legit punk rock, like rock, like punk rockers in this way that was, so we play a show at the Verge in Kentish town in London. 
And the opening band was a Leeds hardcore band. And there's a drum rug at the venue. And show ends and we're loading out and we lo- we're loading the Sprinter. It's like day four of a seven-week tour. And all of a sudden, we're all hanging out. The local, the Leeds band is there. And this promoter comes out furious, drunk and furious, and is like, gets right up in the face. I'm not going to do accents because I can't, but gets right up in the face of the guy, the, the kid from Leeds. And he's like, I know you, where is it? I know you fucking took it. Where is it? And the guy's like, what the fuck are you talking about? He's like, you nicked our fucking rug, man. I know you nicked our fucking rug. Give me the fucking rug. And the kid's like, I didn't nick your fucking rug. You think I need to steal a fucking drum rug from your venue to do what? To go home to Leeds? Like, what the fuck are you talking? about, you know, and you know, he must have come to Kofax and Rob was like, no man, I got no idea. That's fucking crazy. You know, whatever. We get in the van and the doors have not even closed. And Sue Khan's like, you know I nicked that fucking drum rug, <laughs> man. <laughs> <laughs> and like at that time he probably said like Sadate or something like that from yeah, fucking right. Kitty Tang. Yeah, right. And he fucking and the straight facedness with which they played this. And then as soon as we I was and dude, I didn't they think we play. stole the drum rug. Yeah, I right. was like, I was fucking shocked. It was like the usual suspects or something. I was like, wait, what? And I remember from that point forward being like, But he totally plays into that kind of like, well, no one suspects Kofax. Look at these nice boys. So they but like, that's, that's you know, like that's the thing. I was going to say too, which actually to this day is something I, I think about and fuck with. He said to me on that tour once, because it was with border crossings. Oh, right. He was like, I want to look like a college student. Yes. I don't, I, I want to live like a punk, but I want to look like a college student because I don't want to like invite attention. And I was like, that's the most fucking punk rock thing you could do Absolutely. in and my we, mind. We had that thing. And that's one of the reasons that I, I met him in 1996, I think. And we immediately gelled because we were just kind of like, like, why would you want to like have dreadlocks and piercings and bunch of stickers on your van? Like when you're trying to go through the border, like you're just, it's like having a VW bus and a bunch of great, you know, or fuck the police or whatever. Like (laughs) totally. It's just like, just, you know, we, we can, I mean, it's, it's kind of now we realize it's an acknowledgement of our privilege, but it's just, sure. Sure. I was just kind of like, I don't, I don't want that hassle. That's it for this episode of Vagrant Records, 25 Years on the Streets. We still have many more episodes on the way, so be sure to subscribe to this podcast and rate it on iTunes. This podcast was produced by Jesse Cannon for Muse Formation and executive produced by Fred Feldman and Andrew Ellis. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode.